let's just start out by talking about you, because um, obviously, um, you know, from from the time that I knew you, I think when you were a junior in college, and uh, <laughs> of the Truman Scholarship Award, I had a chance to meet you, and I think I will assure everyone who's listening that everybody remembers the first time they met Stacey Abrams because you are so incredibly, uh, you know, um, amazing and and uh, inspirational. And so, I just want people to understand we have a long relationship um, uh, over over a long period of time. And and um, starting out maybe with me being a little bit older and and the person standing in front of the room to watching you. Um, assume the mantle of leadership, especially for your generation and for many people in the South. And so um, the South is a place where people forget is rural. People forget that it's very diverse um, and that it is changing. So if you could talk a little bit about Georgia and the work that you're doing there and what trends you see in the state of Georgia that might inform what's going to happen politically across the South. Absolutely. Well, first, Senator Heitkamp, it is always a joy to be in your presence. You were exciting and dynamic the first time I got to hear you. And when we reconnected, it was one of the joys of my life that you actually remembered who I was. So it is a high compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I was born in Wisconsin. I grew up in Mississippi and I came of age in Georgia. Where I lived in Mississippi, we were in Gulfport, which was one of the larger cities. But when I was growing up, that meant that we had 50,000 people. Most of the communities between Gulfport and Hattiesburg, the next big city, if you go up Highway 49, were rural communities. And much of Mississippi, like much of the South, has large swaths of rural communities that are linked by county roads, by their churches by you know, having you know, gas stations as one of the best places to get chicken, but by a nature of not simply being isolated, but having a sense of community that's distinct because you are so dependent on one another, but often removed from the hustle and bustle of major cities. When we moved to Georgia and moved to Atlanta, that was the largest city that I had ever lived in. But as I became Democratic leader, as I became a legislator and and became more deeply involved in state politics, I returned to what I'd learned in Mississippi. When my mom and dad became pastors when they were 40, I was just starting college and I went to visit my mom's rural charge in Stone County, Mississippi. I remember going to cash a check and I'd forgotten my wallet. And the woman at the bank said, oh, you're the spitting image of your mom. I'll cash it for you. It would never happen in Atlanta. (laughs) But what it signaled was this sense of community and connection and the absolute lack of privacy in some ways. (laughs) But but what I what I mean is that when you when you think about rural communities, there are these stereotypes that are immediately accessible. But what's so different in the South, and I think what, what folks need to understand about the Southwest, about the North, is that being rural does not mean simply being white and a farmer. It means being white and you are a tech person who's trying to figure out how to update technology for the use of agriculture. It's about being African-American or Latino 
or Native American. And it's about being in community in a way that requires a little bit more to access the macro, but not ignore who and what we are. When I became a Democratic state legislator, there was a, a gentleman who was the, the majority, the minority leader when I got there. And he told me, you are not here to be the Atlanta city representative. You are a Georgia state representative. And I took that as a challenge. And on my own, I went to visit almost 150 of our counties before I ran for governor because I wanted to understand a state that has more than 100 counties that are considered rural. And the tie back to voting is this. The ability to send power to the state capital requires that rural communities have to align themselves with one another. Because unlike communities or neighborhoods in urban areas, the population is too low to have your own voice. And so you're required to knit together your needs with the needs of some who do not share your values or share your desires. But because you are so few in number, there's a requirement for negotiation and navigation and cooperation that I think could send an important signal to legislative bodies across the country and certainly to ones in Congress. Well, I think I think in our party, the, the uh, Democratic Party, um, the, the, the kind of uh, uh, friction that we have right now is that we'll never get those rural voters back. If you focus on rural voters, you will um, ignore the the places where the mining is better for um, more votes, which is in suburbia, which is quickly becoming more uh, democratic um, uh, because I think of this president. But you know, we've been making the pitch at One Country that you cannot ignore rural America and win. I mean, if you lose rural America, eighty twenty. You can't win the governorship. You can't win a, a Senate race. You can't win um, by losing a population. Plus, this is a population that um, Obama uh, got very many votes in rural America. So people who want to attribute it to race or, or any other number of issues are ignoring the fact that there are Trump-Obama voters out there that I think are capable of um, being persuaded to um, vote for the Democratic Party. And so how do we reach those folks, Stacey? How do we vote? I I think there there are two components. There are the Obama Trump voters that we absolutely need to reach out to, particularly in the pandemic, because part of what has driven the the desperation we've seen is the absolute incompetence of the current leadership. The incompetence of Trump and his administration has put American lives at risk. And the lack of concern may have been put into sharp relief by the pandemic, but it's been echoed for the last three years through the trade wars, through the refusal to actually hold up any of his promises to rural communities to serve them, through his attempt to dismantle health care, which is vital to rural communities, and his failure to help shore up rural hospitals. And so I think that's one conversation. We can have, but, but I, think but I sec- would be Stacy. I'd be remiss if I didn't say let's play devil's advocate. Yeah, but those people love him. Those are his staunchest supporters. Even though you all the things that you listed that he's failed to do or that he has been proactive in dismantling their their markets to the point that 
They're experiencing serious financial stress, but yet we see poll after poll showing that these the same population, the same region of the country supports Donald Trump. Why is that? Well, it, and, and that's going to be my point. So we have to remember that for a lot of Obama Trump voters, they were Bush Obama Trump voters. So the departure was when they voted for Obama, not when they voted for Trump. The issue is what drove them to vote for Obama in 2008 and what drove them to vote for Trump in 16 was a sense of urgency and a sense of despair and desperation. And so the reason I use the pandemic as a point of departure is that we are we find ourselves in 2020 in much the position we were in in 2008, which is that the failure of government to do its job is usually something you can ignore until you need government to do its job. And what the pandemic is putting into sharp relief is how vital that national that that federal support is and how absent it has been in ways that is you know that's literally costing lives. I recently did a piece with Senator Tom Daschle of of South Dakota and we talked about how rural communities are more vulnerable to COVID-19 than people realize. And that conversation has to be an intentional one, because one of the reasons Trump was so attractive, let's put aside any of the, the issues of race and xenophobia, but there was the, the question of whether he offered something that has been the people have despaired of seeing, which is that they are visible and included and that someone cares about their problems. We can do that without abandoning our values. And we can do that by making sure people understand the connection between his rhetoric and his incompetence. But that has to be something we're intentional about. But the other piece is you can't win all of them because some people ideologically agree with who he is and what he stands for, and God bless them. But we have a whole community in rural, in our rural pockets that don't vote at all because they don't hear themselves talked about by either party. They don't hear themselves in a language that seems to give primacy to urban and suburban notions that ignore rural communities, but they also don't hear themselves when they hear the xenophobic, racist, and sometimes classist narrative that they hear coming from the other side. That's a potential pool of potential voters we've ignored. And in my campaign in 2018, we turned out a lot of those voters. We turned out voters who had never participated at all because they thought neither party could see them. And what I find so exciting about the work you're doing, Senator, is that that's a population that wants to be seen and wants to be heard and more than likely will stand with us, but only if we reach out to them. Yeah, and, and I think the other key component and something you're so good at is providing hope. Yes, let's talk about the despair and let's talk about the challenges, but let's talk about why we're hopeful and why we believe that rural America can uh, level the playing field in terms of poverty. We know that there's higher rates of poverty. There is higher rates of chronic disease. Um, rural America is aging, all of these things. And to provide hope that, you know what, you can live in a town of 10,000 people and be assured that you'll be able to go to the grocery store get healthcare and that your children will get the best quality education that um, uh, technology and good teaching can provide, but it's not going to happen by accident. And so how do we, how do we develop this sense of hopefulness um, and, and not just we're waiting it out until the, the, the last person leaves and shuts off the lights in rural America? 
Exactly. So, so the two organizations or three organizations I created in the wake of my election, one is called Fair Count, because that's the beginning of that conversation. The census tells us who we are in America. And one of the hardest to count populations are rural communities. Because of COVID-19, there are 6.2 million people who have not yet received their census packets because they can only be delivered by hand. But the millions of dollars that go along with being in rural communities are often completely squandered because these communities don't get counted. Then you layer on top of that, and going back to your very first point, rural America is diverse. It is comprised of communities of color, of immigrants, of a range of populations that are also hard to count. And so you take hard to count rural, layer on that hard to count people of color and hard to count immigrants, and you end up with communities that never get the resources they deserve. One of the reasons the pandemic is hitting rural America so hard, you know what it's done to the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. We heard stories about what's happening in other Native American communities is that they weren't adequately counted in the last census. And the same thing holds true for a lot of communities, regardless of race. They don't have adequate hospitals and they don't have the hospital beds for treatment because they weren't counted in the last census. And all of the dollars that could have gone to not only building those hospitals or filling those beds, but also putting those grocery stores in place, those those dollars never came because no one knew they were there. And so my first very strong push is to make certain every hard to count person gets counted in the census. This is going to decide the allocation of $1.5 trillion every year for the next decade. It's like saying to every person who doesn't get counted, you're entitled to a stimulus check, but we're not going to give it to you for 10 years. Every year we're going to skip over you. The second is voting. So the, the census gives us two things. It gives us the resources we need for our communities and it sets the political lines for picking our leaders. And in rural communities, that matters the most because the way those lines are drawn, because communities are rural, they've got to pack a lot of folks into these lines. And so they're going to reach out and grab a lot of different communities that may have competing needs. We need a census that tells us where the needs are so that folks can align themselves and work together to better their communities. The second part is voting. And you mentioned this at the very top. The right to vote is sacred. And we know that rural communities get hit hardest sometimes by voter suppression. When you shut down a polling place in an urban city, that's a problem. If you shut it down in a rural place, that's an impossibility. Because if the, the poll plate polling place was a mile away from you and now it's 10 miles and you don't have a car, or there's now only one for your entire county, and it takes 45 minutes to an hour to get there, and you work two hours in the other direction, that eliminates your right to vote. And that's why vote by mail is going to be so important. And it's not a partisan issue. Vote by mail can be the way in COVID-19 that the rural communities actually have a voice in this election. And so those are two ways through pushing for a fair fight and a fair count that we can make sure that rural communities are seen and heard now and they don't have to wait until the last man is standing at the light and about to turn it off. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that you're going to see, um, you know, I always find it interesting because growing up, um, drug addiction was always that that inner city problem. It was always, you know, that those are those people or somebody other than us. 
and um, drug addictions come to rural America. Some of the highest rates of opioid abuse are in rural America. And I always remind people of that when they say, oh, you know, we're immune from COVID having any impact on us because we're rural. And now we're seeing reports of very, very serious outbreaks, hotspots. Um, you know, the numbers aren't going to overwhelm New York, but as a percentage of population, and given the healthcare resources that are available, incredibly dangerous. And, you know, one of, one of the reasons why North Dakota has been able to um, uh, keep our rural hospital system going is because we expanded Medicaid and provided that repayment system. But yet, um, you know, the Republican Party is kind of uniform in their argument before the courts that they're going to eliminate the health care law, which would devastate would devastate uh, rural health care. How do we, um, you know, taking a look at this message of equal education, equal opportunity to quality health care, equal opportunity to um, uh, economic development benefits, how do we take that message and, and uh, you know, which is clearly our message, and uh, distribute it and get it out there to rural communities so that they, they instead of thinking they just have one choice, which is to vote the way, um, you know, their parents voted or to vote the way they've, uh, they voted in the last election, that they really have a choice to um, make a different decision. How do we get that message out there, Stacey? I think the first part is that we have to lift up the notion of equity as well as equality. Equality says we're all entitled. Equity says it might be harder for some and we've got to make sure they still get access. We know it is more expensive to educate a rural child because of transportation costs, because of the challenges that are concomitant with the lives of rural communities, because we tend to know that rural communities have less, have fewer resources. And so we have to focus on equity as much as equality. And we have to talk about why it hasn't happened that often it is not simply a matter of moral fortitude that we say rural communities should struggle. It's cheapness. It's sometimes the leaders are too cheap to do the work. It is more expensive to maintain a hospital or a, a, a federally qualified health center in a rural community, but that expense is part of the compact we made as Americans to take care of one another. And it is a patriotic act for us to invest in all of our people, even if it costs a little more than we were used to. But the other part is that we've got to connect the dots in the moment. We, as politicians, there's a tendency to wait until an election and give a list of all the sins of the other side. My approach is that we've got to spend the time in between elections actually talking to and encouraging people to hold us accountable. It's, it's awkward feeling sometimes, but it's something I know you do exceptionally well. We've got to tell people what's happening when it's happening so that instead of storing up our ammunition and their rage, which usually do not coincide, we get people to understand that if this is what you need, here's the person that's responsible. Ask them why it hasn't been done. And more importantly, if you think it can be done better, ask the next person, the next woman or the next man what they can do to make it better. But instead, what we do is we have this pendulum swing from election to election without ever stopping it in the middle and having a conversation about what happened in between those two polls. That, that is really the theory, Stacey, behind one country, which is don't, don't tell me how you're going to canvass rural voters, you know, six months before the election. Tell me how you're going to talk to them 
two years before the election and how you're going to rebrand the Democratic Party. Because right now, I mean, you know, it's no secret. Joe Donnelly and I and Claire would probably tell you the single largest obstacle we had to reelection was being labeled Democrat. Um, That brand in states like ours has been seriously injured. It's not irreparable. Um, You know, it's just been 10 years since we had an all Democratic uh, delegation. And so how do we how do we um, reintroduce ourselves and how do we get out there and make sure that we've got the right policies? And, yes, challenge the other side. You know, one of the things that that I've never believed in is taking voting blocks and saying, okay, you're all going to vote one way all the time, because I think once that happens, Those people get taken advantage of. Well, we don't need to talk to those people. They're reliable Democrat voters or reliable Republican voters. And a lot of times the agenda gets left behind. And I think these these high intensity voting blocks feel that. And so for rural America, I just remind them, you know, if you aren't willing to hold people politically accountable at the ballot box, then you lose your political power. So what are you going to do to hold people politically accountable? I think it's absolutely right. I think there are two pieces. One is, I don't think we have to rebrand, but I do think we have to expand our brand. Because one of the challenges with rebranding is that to rebrand to reach one group, you may leave another group behind. And one of the beauties of being a Democrat, it's one of our curses, but it is one of our strengths, is our ability to be protean and to expand to meet the needs of the moment and the needs of the people. Whereas the Republican brand tends to be fairly static, fairly exclusive, and it does not see everyone. And so I think what you're doing is exactly right. It's what I had to do here in Georgia. I didn't change. I couldn't force the Democratic Party writ large to rebrand, but I stood as an example of how the brand could be expanded to meet the needs of the South. And I campaigned everywhere, which is your second point. We did not treat a single consistent constituency as a known and a given. I didn't presume anybody was going to vote for me. We assumed everyone had to be persuaded. And going back to your earlier point, some people you're persuading, you're persuading them to change their ideology, to go from what they think a Democrat, a Republican is and what they think a Democrat is and get them to shift. But the other part of persuasion is convincing people who actually agree with you to do something about it. Yeah. And we have to be a both and party in our campaigning which is that we have to reach both of those groups and treat them with the same consistency, the same integrity, and the same investment. That investment has to be commensurate to the number of votes. So you're not going to spend as much in North Dakota or in rural Georgia as you might in New York City or Atlanta, but you should spend a lot because those voters are just as valuable. And if you can aggregate those votes, you can win. And we know it works because we saw it work, as you said. In 2008 and 2012, it worked. We simply have to remember that we can expand who we are to meet the people and meet their needs. And we have to recognize that everyone is a persuasion target. Everyone has to be convinced each election that we're the right answer. Well, and I I think we also have to be willing to have the conversation. One thing that I was really impressed with with Kirsten Gillibrand, um, when she was running for president, I mean, she was out there actually having conversations with evangelicals um, about her, why she believes what she believes as a person of faith um, uh, on, on the issue of women's right to choose. And she didn't run away from that. She didn't discount those voters. She respected enough to sit down. Now, whether she got a vote, I don't know, but 
certainly opening that dialogue makes it possible to say, well, we may not agree on that, but how can we find commonality in raising healthy children or making sure moms can make good choices or dads can make good choices for their kids? And so, I mean, I, I think we've got to acknowledge that there's no topic off limits. You aren't going to get people to agree, but if you don't meet people where they are, you you will never have an opportunity to persuade. I always, I always tell this story about coming in when I was a young politician, 28 years old, and this guy at a coffee table was giving me a hard time. And I say, you know what? I know I was never going to get his vote, but I didn't know if I was going to get the vote of all those other guys sitting around the coffee table. And so you remember, you may be in a debate with one person, but you're talking to everyone who's in proximity. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I did during our campaign, I campaigned at, you know, Dragon Con, which is the, you know, comic book festival. I campaigned at one music fest, which was an urban music festival. And I campaigned where they filmed Deliverance. I gave a speech about gun safety at a gun show. And the reality was because I, I had the integrity to have the conversation, not in the corner, but on the stage. And I could talk about the fact that my great-grandmother, Mumu, taught me how to shoot a shotgun. She also taught me you only shoot things you plan to eat. And since I mainly eat chicken, I've never really found a need to hunt. But, <laughs> but what she wanted me to understand was that if you hold a, a weapon, you are responsible. That is your obligation. And that we can have a conversation about common sense gun safety if we begin by presuming that people have legitimate reasons for wanting to own. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that you have to abandon the second amendment in order to say that some people don't, don't need weapons and other people need to learn how to handle theirs better. Yeah. And to your point, when you have, when you're willing to have the conversation and stand in your space, like Kirsten Gillibrand, I mean, before this podcast, I was actually on a conversation with faith 2020 talking about how my faith has guided me in my politics I don't run away from who I am. As I tell people, you can't miss me. And so my responsibility is to be fully who I am, warts and all, so that people know what they're getting. Because one of the truths of the rural community is that authenticity matters. You can spot a phony. Yeah. You may decide you're still going to work with them or her, but it matters that you say who you are so people get to make a choice. And they can't make a choice if we don't campaign there, if we don't work there, and if we don't listen there. Yeah. And and if we don't cultivate leaders there. I think sometimes there's, you know, I always say what in, in many parts of North Dakota, if you're a Democrat, you go around whispering it because you don't want to take on the the challenge that comes from that. And so we don't groom leaders who are our messengers in those communities. Um, and, and that's another huge issue, I think, for the DNC. And, you know, I honestly have to say, and maybe it's just I'm biased because the woman who's running the rural outreach is somebody who ran my campaign. But I think that they are they, they recognize that one of the reasons why we don't have President Clinton, Hillary Clinton today, is because there wasn't good enough and adequate outreach to rural communities and, and people felt disenfranchised. Um, and, and they were told by the current leader that um, I'm going to take care of you. 
and and you know I see you and you know your your values are my values and and I think we have to as you said not let not let too much space come between that statement and the reality and the challenge and you know when talk radio is dominated by by uh, people who are simply cheerleading for this administration we have a big uphill climb but we also have an opportunity to reach those people who want to hear, who want somebody out there who is reflecting their values. Because I am really convinced that many, many people in rural America are mortified by the uh, the challenges of having a president who does not speak the truth. Um, but I, they're intimidated to say anything. I, I completely agree. And I think that's why this podcast is so important. It's why Folks like you are important, and it's important for people like me. I may live in the city, but I've never forgotten my roots. And I spend time going to the places where people are hurting the most. But you can't simply show up. I mean, my, my mom and dad are both pastors, and my mom would always say, meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. And if we want the rural community to join us and to share their values in their votes, then we've got to go to where they are and do the work of engaging them. The one other piece I would put, a, I want to just put a point on, you know, 2016 had a lot of, there were a lot of inputs that led to the outcome. And I think you're absolutely right about the challenge of reaching out to rural America, but we can also not ignore the role that voter suppression plays in every election, particularly in your election. What happened to the native American communities in North Dakota with voter ID Reflect, was reflected in what happened in Wisconsin in 2016 and happens in Florida and in Georgia and across the country. We have to recognize that the restrictions that have been placed on access to the right to vote may target certain communities, but they affect us all. And rural communities are not immune to voter suppression. And so as we fight to make certain that we are holding leaders accountable and that we're giving them new leaders to look to, we also have to ensure every day that their right to vote is not impeded and not impinged by those who don't want to hear their voices. I, I, I think when, when we look back on 2020, there is going to be a level of enthusiasm in, in voting that will scare the hell out of people who um, want to suppress the vote because people aren't going to take a back seat. They've seen what that looks like in terms of the reality of their lives, and they know that that ballot is critically important. And there is, there is hopefully, you know, you don't see a lot of ambiguity, even in North Dakota on whether people should vote or not. We've always been high performing voters. Um, but, you know, it's like, well, we don't want to encourage voting for students or Native Americans. And students were another group that was actively um, uh, targeted for disenfranchisement. Um, uh, yeah. And, and so the, the more that we can get those students, especially voting and, and creating those lifelong patterns of voting, that the more important it is. And so the youth vote is critically important. And that's, you know, something that, um, you know, as, as I explained to everybody, I was an old lady when I met you and you were only a junior in college, but, but you represent that, that new generation of, of leaders in our party, but also that new generation of folks who have to reach out to your contemporaries and convince them that voting is so important. 
if they want the kind of life. I can give you this, this example, Stacey. I was appalled that the president insisted on putting his name on checks, right? Who's going to pay for those checks? Who's actually going to pay that money? It's not his generation. I mean, they'll never retire the debt in his lifetime. They'll never spend down or pay down the debt in his lifetime. He's run up too big of a debt. That's going to go to your generation and the generation behind you. And it's a transfer not only of obligation from the, 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 the dominant kind of political leadership we have today, which is male and white and, and older, to a younger, more diverse, more gender balanced um, uh, group of, of leaders. And, you know, so I would just point out that your generation needs to engage today because the decisions that they are making, that we are making in this baby boomer generation, are going to affect their ability to be successful financially moving forward. And, and it is so important that they engage and, and have a voice. Otherwise, the voice that's heard is the voice that's always been heard and that's always run the country. Absolutely. I mean, this is fundamentally a conversation about power. And in rural communities, there is a sense of powerlessness sometimes because you are isolated from where the seats of power are located. But what I've learned growing up in Mississippi through my work here in Georgia is that the strongest power comes when we knit ourselves together when we link our voices together. And there is nothing louder than participation in our democracy. One of the reasons our campaign reached out to young people was exactly what you're describing. We can't solve the problems of the future. What we can do is build the teams and build the leaders we need to solve those problems. But they have to trust that the system is worth fighting for. And that's why it's so important for us to show young people in rural communities that their values are lived values, that their concerns have value and should be addressed. And that in all of the things we do, whether it's the work in the census or the work on economic capacity or the work on voting rights, for me, it's always about thinking, how do we engage the youngest people who will inherit not only our successes, but our failures? And how do we make certain that everyone feels that they own their particular piece of power in a system that is driven by democratic values. There's a, a Native American value that leaders have an obligation to um, uh, make decisions not for today, but for the seven generations into the future. And if we have that perspective, we'll make better decisions. If we commit that to our ethic, we'll make better decisions. But, you know, think about, think about millennials and, you know, um, we had the Great Recession of uh, 2018. Now we have the pandemic. So two huge economically significant events in, in your lifetime, in your young lifetime, have a dramatic effect on your ability to be successful into the future. But if you don't participate, then you won't get to ask the question, what went wrong and how do we prevent it? I mean, we can talk about the lack of financial regulations on derivatives, what happened during uh, uh, 20, uh, uh, 2008, um, and, and we can talk about, are those problems still fixed? Or do we need to do more to prevent it? But this pandemic, I think, is, is absolutely a learning experience that, um, you know, when, when people 
think only about themselves and not about uh, the rest of the, the country, you don't always get the best results and you don't always get the most equitable results. And so why the, the, the sense that it's, it's okay to um, sacrifice a portion of the, the population, whether it's elderly, whether it is minority, whether it is people in poverty, which I would argue is probably the greatest factor, the, the access to healthcare and chronic conditions of people who live in poverty, that we should never be sacrificing those folks. And we saw what happened when we came out of the Great Recession. The people who did the best were people in the upper 1% of our economy. We've got to have a discussion about how that happened and why it's not going to happen again. But if we don't have people who are going to suffer the consequences of this in 20, 30 years, then we aren't making the right decisions. And so I just, I, I, Stacey, I can't tell you how proud I am of you, how um, how important it is that your voice um, be engaged as a leader um, uh, of, of people who understand this issue so well, and that I know that you're not planning on just being a leader of the youth movement, but a leader in this country, but bringing that youthful perspective, um, I think, to the issues that um, we confront in this country. And you know, one of the things that I know for sure is that if we don't reunite this country and, and find common purpose among all of us through a dialogue and through a discussion, we will we will be incapable of being governed. And, and I think that's uh, the, the challenge uh, for those of you who are still out there in the political arena and not just doing podcasts and, you know, getting out political information and and uh, political argument, but those of you who are still in the arena, and I am so glad, Stacy, that you are still in the arena, still punching it out, and that you have the moxie to step up and say, "I'm ready." Um, I think that is, uh, I think that is a wonderful example to so many of the young people, and and uh, particularly the young women, that you can, in fact, step up and make yourself available and do it in a way that uh, it has an incredible amount of class, but also self-confidence. So, so proud of the work you're doing and so proud of your voice being added and, and really incredibly grateful that you're a Democrat. Well, well Senator Heitkamp, it has always been my pleasure to be anywhere near you. And I'm going to take those very kind words and get them embroidered on a pillow so I can hold it close when people are saying much nastier things to me. Well, but it listen. is an honor always. Yeah, um, you know, don't be standing behind any doors when, <laughs> right? When, you know, don't be hiding behind any doors, and don't be waiting for somebody else to toot your horn. And and I think I think that um, you know, there's a there's a um, there's a value in that, regardless of Stacy the outcome. And um, I think that it is you step up and and speak truth to power, and you be your best advocate because you're advocating for something that's not, and I know this in your case, you're advocating not driven out of ego or driven out of anything other than a love of this country and a desire to see the changes that need to be uh, made in this country to um, preserve our democracy and create a more equitable and just world. Thanks for listening. And if you're really interested and you want more information and want to actually see visually what we're talking about, join us on social media at onecountryproject.org.